The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 74, a contemplation of Asaph. O God, why have you cast us off forever? Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation, which you have purchased of old, the tribe of your inheritance, which you have redeemed, this Mount Zion, where you have dwelt. Lift up your feet to the perpetual desolations. The enemy has damaged everything in the sanctuary. Your enemies roar in the midst of your meeting place. They set up their banners for signs. They seem like men who lift up axes among the thick trees. And now they break down its carved work all at once. With axes and hammers, they have set fire to your sanctuary. They have defiled the dwelling place of your name to the ground. They said in their hearts, let us destroy them altogether. They have burned up all the meeting places of God in the land. We do not see our signs. There is no longer any prophet nor is there any among us who knows how long, O oh God, how long will the adversary reproach? Will the enemy blasphemy your name forever? Why do you withdraw your hand, even your right hand, take it out of your bosom and destroy them? For God is my king from of old, working salvation in the midst of the earth. You divided the sea by your strength. You broke the hands of the sea serpents in the waters. You broke the heads of Leviathan in pieces and gave him as food to the people inhabiting the wilderness. You broke open the fountain and the flood. You dried up mighty rivers. The day is yours. The night also is yours. You have prepared the light and the sun. You have set all the borders of the earth. You have made summer and winter. Remember this, that the enemy has reproached, O Lord, and that a foolish people has blasphemed your name. Oh, do not deliver the life of your turtle dove to the wild beast. Do not forget the life of your poor forever. Have respect to the covenant, for the dark places of the earth are full of the haunts of cruelty. Oh, do not let the oppressed return ashamed. Let the poor and needy praise your name. Arise, O oh God, plead your own cause. Remember how the foolish man reproaches you daily. Do not forget the voice of your enemies, the tumult of those who rise up against you increases continually. Our uh, sermon today is from the book of Numbers, chapter 4. It's verses 1 through 20. And this is entitled, The Holiness of the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi, by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. This is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting, relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a cover of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue, then they shall insert its poles. On the table of showbread, they shall spread a blue cloth and put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, and the pitchers for pouring, and the showbread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a scarlet cloth and cover the same with a covering of badger skins, and they shall insert its poles. And they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand of the light with the lamps, its wick trimmers, its trays, and all its oil vessels with which they service it. And then they shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of badger skins and put it on a carrying beam. Over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with a covering of badger skins and they shall insert its poles. Then they shall take all the utensils of service with which they minister in the sanctuary, put them in a blue cloth, cover them with a covering of badger skins and put them on a carrying beam. Also they shall take away the ashes from the altar and spread a purple cloth over it. They shall put on it all its implements with which they minister there, the firepans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and all the utensils of the altar. Then they shall spread on it a covering of badger skins and insert its poles. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, 
Then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them, but they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting, which the sons of Kohath are to carry. The appointed duty of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light, the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil, the oversight of all the tabernacle, of all that is in it, with the sanctuary and its furnishings. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Do not cut off the tribe of the families of the Kohathites from among the Levites, but do this in regard to them, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and his task, but they shall not go in to watch while the holy things are being covered, lest they die. The verses today cover a list of items that took us dozens dozens of sermons to get through back in the book of Exodus. There, each of these things that will be carried by the Kohathites was described in the minutest of detail. So much so, in fact, that I had a hard time remembering even a small portion of what they pictured in Christ. And so today's verses were a marvelous chance to go back and get a cursory view of some of what was described there. As I went through the verses, I kept thinking how grateful I am that the Lord put them here in the book of Numbers. It was like a trip back to an old childhood home where you can look around and revel in the things that had almost left your memory completely. I would get excited as single words that we had gone through would suddenly come back up looking for an explanation of why they are there. I would anxiously go back to that particular sermon where that one word was used and then say, oh yeah, I remember that. I kept thinking if I had time, I'd go back and reread or rewatch the entire sermon again. But sermon typing day does not allow for such luxuries. And so I would disappointedly close that sermon and go on to the next verse here in Numbers, looking for another chance to go back and review something else. Each time I would enter the text, I'd look it up, and then yet again I'd say, oh yeah, I remember that too. And each time I would be no less surprised that it was a word which pointed to Christ Jesus. Again and again, each word points to him. Our text verse today comes from Psalm 27. It is verse 4. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Along with the excited feeling of rediscovering Christ in simple, obscure words, I also kept getting the same feeling about what was revealed in the rest of the passage. Time and time again, the things which are mentioned are covered up, kept out of sight from any eyes but those designated by the Lord. The only thing that would be seen by anyone except the priests were the various colored cloths which were over those things. And even some of those were covered up by other cloths. All of the beauty that was hidden below those cloths was kept from the eyes of the people. And yet all of that beauty looks to Jesus Christ. He is there, but he is hidden away. No wonder David said what he did in the 27th Psalm. There is beauty all around us. There is a magnificent display of it in the sunrise, in the rushing of a stream through a tree-filled land, or in the careful study of a single flower in the cracks of a rock or in the face of one's beloved. And yet all of those things stem from the Lord himself. Every beautiful thing in the world and in 10,000 times 10,000 other worlds is an expression of his mind. If this is so, then all of the beauty that has been, that is now, or that ever will be, all of it combined cannot equal the beauty of the Lord from whom these things are derived. And here in Numbers, those things that picture the Lord are covered over and concealed from the eyes of Israel. Fallen eyes are too impure to gaze upon such glory. And that is why when he came, he veiled that glory in a garment of flesh. There was enough of his true glory to reveal who he was, but the fallen eyes who saw him only looked at the flesh. Most missed the true glory behind it. This is what Israel was given in type and in shadow, and this is what they are still failing to see in reality. But he is there revealing his true glory to those who are willing to open their eyes and see it. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. 
I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is, they shall not touch any holy thing. It's verses 1 through 15. Verse 1, then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, the usual address of the Lord speaking only to Moses is departed from here by including Aaron. This occurs from time to time when there is a need for Aaron to be involved in whatever is occurring, such as is the case now. In chapter 3, the Levites were taken in place of the firstborn of Israel. They were counted in a census, and they were then dedicated in place of the firstborn. Now, a second numbering of them will occur in order to draw out from their total those who were acceptable for actual service. Aaron is called with Moses in this first section of the chapter because it deals with the priestly class of Levites, as is seen next. Verse 2, take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi by their families, by their father's house. Here, the order of the census is not according to birth order. The sons of Levi are first Gershon, then Kohath, and then Merari. However, Kohath is the most associated with the priestly line of Aaron, and so to them belong the most sacred duties. In the case of this census especially, the details concern the service of the sanctuary. As Kohath is to tend to the most holy implements, they are named first. These holy implements would need to be prepared for moving first and would need to be ready for service once again upon arrival at a new location. Thus we have Kohath named first. The census now to be taken is unlike the previous one. That one was from one month old and upward in order to determine the total count of Levites for the purposes of redemption in place of the firstborn of Israel. This one is of a different age bracket and for a different reason. This is now seen in those, verse 3, from 30 years old and above. This census is specifically to be taken beginning with those who are 30 years old. The number 30 in scripture denotes in a higher degree the perfection of divine order as marking the right moment. It is the age that Joseph was when he stood before Pharaoh. It is the age that Christ was about when he began his ministry. It is also the right moment for the Levites to begin their own particular ministry. Verse 3 going on, even to 50 years old. The census of the Levites ends at the age of 50. Thus, they are being counted according to the prime years of their life for the physical service to the Lord. The number 50 is the number of jubilee or deliverance. It points to deliverance and rest following on as a result of the perfect consummation of time. It is at this age that the Levites are given the deliverance or release from their duties and enter into their deserved time of rest. The entire duration of their active service then is 20 years. 20 signifies expectancy. There is a time of burden and labor in the lives of these men, and the expectancy of their rest is after a period of 20 years. It is as if the meaning of the biblical numbers was decided upon based on the life of these Levites. But... Rather, it is the life of these Levites being fitted to the meaning of the biblical numbers, and that in a most perfect way. Verse 3 continues, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. It is specifically those from 30 to 50 who are herein designated as acceptable and responsible for service in doing the work for the tent of meeting. Later, two separate ages will be given. One is in Numbers 8, verse 24, where the age for performing service in the work of the tent of meeting is set at 25. Later in 1 Chronicles 23, verse 24, the age is set at 20. These varying ages are given for their own reasons, which are explained in the needs of the service itself. It is a service of tending to the tabernacle, especially its movement. Thus, the age of 30 is given. The word translated as the service here is tzavah. It was used to signify those prepared for war in the census of chapter 1. Thus, these men are specifically to be considered as the hosts of the Lord. They are his sacred military force. This is certain because of what is next stated. Verse 4, this is the service of the sons of Kohath in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. The word translated as the service here is not the same Hebrew word. It is avodat, labor. They are the Lord's hosts, and the description of their labors is forthcoming. 
But from this verse, we see that those duties are in relation to the tent of meeting, and specifically in regards to Kodesh HaKodeshim, or the most holy things. These items are found in the most holy place and in the holy place of the tabernacle, and which will be described in the coming verses. They also include the altar of sacrifice, which is outside of the tabernacle. Verse 5, when the camp prepares to journey... Their first duties are specifically noted as when it was time to break down camp for continuing the journey towards Canaan. In all expectation, this would be just a few short stops along the way, and they would be there in no time at all. All of the preparations of the preceding year were intended for them to be ready to journey on a quick path into the new land. The fact that it would be almost after every single one of them was dead is irrelevant to what they now expect. As the camp is anticipated to break down and depart, the order of that will now be noted. This task will be performed in the same exact way that any tent would be moved, beginning with the contents on the inside and working outwards. Verse 5 continues, Aaron and his sons shall come, and they shall take down the covering veil. This is an exception to the rule of the most holy place. Leviticus 16 defines the allowances for entry into this area. It was to be entered only by the high priest, and only once a year on the Day of Atonement. However, during the time of movement, or at a particular time authorized by the Lord, such as when the ark was carried around the city of Jericho, exceptions to the law of entry were made. The idea here is that the presence of the Lord would move in the cloud, indicating that the camp was about to depart. This was seen in Exodus 40, verses 36 through 38, with these words. Whenever the cloud was taken up from above the tabernacle, the children of Israel would go onward in all their journeys. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not journey till the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was above the tabernacle by day, and fire was over it by night, in the sight of all of the house of Israel throughout all their journeys. With the presence no longer in the most holy place, it would be safe for the priests to enter without fear of death. With the allowance for moving noted, the first thing these chosen priests were to do was to remove the paroket, or the veil, which hung between the holy place and the most holy place. In short, the veil symbolized the body of Jesus Christ. But for a detailed understanding of it, one can go back to the sermon in Exodus chapter 26. Verse 5 continues, And cover the ark of the testimony with it. This veil used to cover the entrance to the most holy place where the ark rested was now to cover the ark itself. And the ark is known here by its full name, the ark of the testimony. The ark's purpose was to be a container for the testimony itself. In short, it is a picture of Christ embodying the law. But the detail is so involved, so specific, and so beautiful that the sermon on Exodus 25, 10 through 22 needs to be referred to if you've never heard that. The symbolism of the veil covering the ark itself is magnificent. His body covers the testimony, the ark, and the mercy seat. In essence, his humanity veils those things which picture his deity from human eyes. On that veil are the cherubim, which guard access to the spot where paradise is restored. In Christ's death, the veil, meaning his body, was torn, removing the guards and granting access once again. For now in numbers, the veil remains. Verse 6, then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins. As seen in the Exodus sermons, the translation badger skins is incorrect. The word is tachash. It indicates or signifies a sea animal, most likely a sea cow or a porpoise. Thus, it would be a light gray to sky blue covering. It is always used in connection with the coverings associated with the tabernacle with but one exception. In Ezekiel 16, it is used to describe figurative sandals, which are worn by the city of Jerusalem. This skin has toughness and waterproofing properties. As the sea is representative of the world of chaos, confusion, and rebellion, this then makes a picture of Christ's covering from that. On the outside is the appearance of a regular man, but under that are all the riches of Christ. The word used to describe this, kasui, is a noun seen only here and in verse 14. It signifies a covering. This was to be placed over the veil, and then from there, verse 6 continues, and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue. Over everything, there was to be placed a cloth which was completely blue. The color in Hebrew is tekelet. 
It is believed to come from the word shechelet, the cerulean muscle, meaning the color from it that is used for dyeing. Blue in the Bible is associated with the law, especially the keeping of the law. This would be the only thing that was visible of the ark with the exception of, verse 6 continues, and they shall insert its poles. These words are debated. According to Exodus 25, verse 15, the poles were never to be removed from the ark. And so one, this is an exception that was necessary for them to remove them in the process of covering the ark and then reinserting them once again. Two, holes may have been made in the covering, which was slipped over the poles. Three, the poles themselves were actually covered. Or four, the ark was lifted on the shoulders, as the Hebrew would imply, fitting them for being carried. That's a possible translation. As the exact same words are used in the next verses to indicate placing the poles in other pieces of furniture, it is probable that they were removed as an exception, just as it was an exception that the priests would be conducting these duties at all. The poles, if you remember, picture the two testaments of the Bible. The four rings picture the four Gospels, which tie the two Testaments together into one picture of Christ. What the people would actually see pictured what we are studying right now, what we carry with us in our cars, what we often ignore, and what is covered with layers of dust in most houses of the world today. What the people saw was that thing in Israel, which was of the highest value of all the Holy Bible, which reveals the person and the work of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Within it, like within the Bible, are all those things which picture him and which reveal him. Verse 7, on the table of showbread, they shall spread a blue cloth. The next item to be secured was the shulchan ha-panim, or table the faces, meaning the table of the presence, or the table of showbread. Again, amazing pictures of Christ are revealed in this piece of furniture. They are detailed in the sermon from Exodus 25, 23 through 30. This table is to likewise be covered with a blue cloth symbolizing the law. Verse 7 continues, And put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, and the pitchers for pouring. These items were kept on the table at all times. But during transport, they were to be placed on the blue covering which was over the table. Each of these items was described in minute detail during the Exodus sermons. Verse 7 continues, and the showbread shall be on it. The bread known as the bread of the faces, the bread of the presence or the showbread is here called lechem ha-tamid or bread the continual. The term is unique to this verse and it is used to indicate that even during transport, the bread was to be placed back on this table. It was always to be present. After that, verse 8, they shall spread over them a scarlet cloth. They were next to be covered with a cloth of tola'at shani, or worms crimson. Thus, it is the dye obtained from the crimson grub worm. That is, in itself, a great picture of Christ's atoning death on the cross, as has been seen in several of our previous sermons. Verse 8 continues, and cover the same with the covering of badger skins. On top of all of it was to be a covering of sea animal skin. It is a weatherproof covering. However, it also looks to Christ in a world of chaos, but with treasures of him hidden inside. Verse 8 continues, And they shall insert its poles. These are the exact same words for inserting the poles into the ark from verse 6. The poles again point to the two testaments being inserted into four rings which picture the four gospels. Verse 9, and they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand of the light. The next article to be covered in turn is the menorah. Only here and in Exodus 35, 14 is it called menorat ha-maor or menorah, the light. The symbolism of this article is so amazing and so beautiful that it's really hard to imagine. It is described in Exodus 35, 21 through 30. Verse 9 continues, with its lamps, its wick trimmers, its trays, and all its oil vessels with which they service it. All of these items were carefully detailed in previous sermons, and all minutely detail the work of Christ. Verse 10, then they shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of badger skins. Again, like the other implements, it is covered with hides of sea cows, not badger skins. 
For the menorah, like the table of showbread, it is the absolute outside covering. Verse 10 continues, and put it on a carrying beam. Here is a new noun in the Bible, mot, or a pole. It comes from the verb mot, which indicates to totter or to shake, and thus figuratively to fall. When David used this verb in the 30th Psalm saying, I shall never be moved, it means that he will stand fast and not fall. The mot then is a beam that shakes as it's carrying something, as a yoke does. It is used here and then in a similar manner in Numbers chapter 13 when the spies will carry a cluster of grapes on a single mot or pole after they have searched out the land of Canaan. The beam would surely have been made to accommodate the menorah. One might think of something like a palanquin or a sedan chair specifically made for it. This single united beam, however it was constructed, looks to the work of the Spirit. In both Testaments, there is one Spirit working, and thus the menorah, which is the light of Christ, is transported in this manner. Verse 11, over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth. This is the altar of incense, also known as the golden altar. It is described in Exodus 30, verses 1 through 10, and it is amazing in its pictures of Christ. This is also covered in blue, symbolizing the law. Verse 11 continues, and cover it with a covering of badger skins. The outermost covering is once again that of hides of sea animals. Again, one should simply think of the symbolism of Christ in each and every step of this process. Once it was ready, verse 11 going on, and they shall insert its poles. Unlike the other items with rings, this altar had only two, not four. Rather than picturing the four Gospels, these two rings picture the witness of Christ. In the Old Testament, that was the word of the prophets. In the New, it is the word of the apostles. Both of these combine to give us a basis for the word. The two poles, then, are the compilation of these two witnesses, the Old and New Testaments. Verse 12, Then they shall take all of the utensils of service with which they minister in the sanctuary. Here is a new noun, charret. It signifies the ministry. It will be seen only here and then again in 2 Chronicles 24, verse 14. It comes from the verb sharat, meaning to minister. Although it's uncertain, these are probably all of the things associated with the priestly service, such as garments, the ephod, the breastplate, and so on. They were only worn during service. When it was time to move, they would be kept together and, verse 12 continues, put them in a blue cloth signifying the law, and, verse 12 continues, cover them with a covering of badger skins, sea animal hides, signifying the world of chaos outside, and, verse 12 continues, and put them on a carrying beam. One beam, like the menorah, is used. The work of the Spirit is one, and it is a work of grace through faith. Verse 13, also they shall take away the ashes from the altar. This is the brazen altar which is being spoken of here. The verb dashen means to grow fat or to be fat. Thus, these ashes are specifically the ashes of the fat of sacrificial animals. This fat residue was to be removed and disposed of as required. And from there, verse 13 continues, and spread a purple cloth over it. Instead of a tekelet or blue covering, only this one item receives an argaman or purple, meaning a blue-red covering. This is the only time this color is mentioned in the book of Numbers. The color is one of royalty or that which pertains to or belongs to a king. As it is a mixture of blue and red, its meaning is thus a combination of what those two colors mean. The law for blue and war, blood, and or judgment for red. Here it signifies the satisfaction of the law through judgment on sin. In other words, the color looks to the fulfillment of the law through the sacrifice of Christ, pictured in the altar of sacrifice, which is in accord with the law. Does everybody see? Every color is being picked because it pictures what Christ has done in that article. The, uh, what do you call it, the ark and the mercy seat are being covered by the veil, which is his body, because he is still the embodiment of the law, and then that's covered with blue because it's the law. He is the embodiment of the law. And then you get to the next one, they put down a blue cloth, and then they cover that with something else because the blue cloth, he is the embodiment of the law, but the red goes over that because he died in fulfillment of the law. I am the bread of the life, etc. Each one of these pictures, what he actually did, 
in the case of this one, it is a purple cloth because he is the place of propitiation for our sins. It's a picture of him dying on the cross of Calvary. Next, verse 14, they shall put on it all its implements with which they minister there, the fire pans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and all the utensils of the altar. All of these items were designated for use in conjunction with the brazen altar. They are to be laid upon the purple cloth. Verse 14 continues, And they shall spread on it a covering of badger skins and insert its poles. Like most of the other items, this one, too, is covered with hides of sea animals. The symbolism remains the same, as does the symbolism for the poles. One item not mentioned here is what is said concerning the fire in this altar. That is recorded in Leviticus 6, 9, which said a fire shall always be burning on the altar. It shall never go out. The reason for this is that the fire was originally started by the Lord when he sent down holy fire to consume the first offering that was made on it. It is speculated, it's only speculation, that the coals were collected and kept burning while moving. But this goes unstated. Verse 15, And when Aaron and his sons had finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary, when the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come to carry them. Only the priests were allowed to do this most sacred work, which involved actually seeing the most holy objects. No other person was allowed to do so. Even the objects which could be seen, like the brazen altar, were not to be touched by any but the priests. After everything was prepared, only then could the sons of Kohath come to have these burdens lifted to their shoulders for carrying. Verse 15 continues, But they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. Only the staves themselves could be touched, but nothing else. The penalty for touching a holy object by a non-priest was death. And this death would be a speedy one, as is seen in 2 Samuel chapter 6, where it says this, And when they came to Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. Poor Uzzah. He forgot to read the instruction manual, and it cost him his life. Verse 15 continues, These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting which the sons of Kohath are to carry. Everything thus far mentioned was to be the sole responsibility of the sons of Kohath to carry. They were to be carried on their shoulders. The responsibility would have been great. In all, there are six things which are mandated for Kohath to carry. The ark, the table of showbread, the menorah, the golden altar, the instruments of ministry, and the brazen altar. Six is the number of man, and thus they present Christ, the man. Before going on, it should be noted that one item that was minutely described in Exodus and which was a standard piece of furniture to be used by the priests is never mentioned here, the bronze laver. Its preparation and transport are noticeably missing. The order in which it was moved or how it was actually conveyed is not stated at all anywhere. One must wonder why. The reason is because of what it pictured. Perpetual cleansing from the Lord. The Lord, through his word, is fully sufficient to cleanse and to keep on cleansing. He is sufficient to sanctify and to keep on sanctifying. He is sufficient to purify and to keep on purifying. From him, the water never ceases. Every need is met and every desire is fulfilled in him. The omission was purposeful in order to show us a truth concerning Jesus Christ. He is ever available for our cleansing. No matter where we move, no matter what deplorable place that we go to, there is always available to us the pure cleansing of the word. It will never depart from us. As long as we come to the tap, the water will flow. In this life, we will never search out all of the mysteries of his word. And in eternity, the water will never run dry. This is a promise of Revelation chapter 22, verse 1, where it says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This seventh item not mentioned would bring the total items carried to the idea of spiritual perfection, the number seven. Holy furnishings kept from man's sight, carefully covered and hidden from fallen eyes. Marvelous things, colored and bright, cherished by Israel as the most sacred prize. 
Each is hidden so that none can see, and those who carry them dare not touch or even look. The priests have prepared them ever so carefully, minute precautions the priests covering them took. But the people finally saw what these things looked forward to. Jesus came, the embodiment of each sacred thing. All that they pictured he fulfilled through and through, from shadow to substance, all of it he did bring. If only we will open these, our fallen eyes, we will find our holy Lord, our most sacred prize. Our second thought today is that they may live and not die. Verses 16 through 20. Verse 16, the appointed duty of Eliezer, the son of Aaron, the priest, is the oil for the light, the sweet incense, the daily grain offering, the anointing oil. Eliezer is the oldest surviving son of Aaron, and he was given specific charge over all of these special items, ensuring that they were carefully readied for moving. These may actually have been carried by him, or it may be that he personally tended to them before giving them to the sons of Kohath to be carried. Either way, they are all a part of the holy items, and he is given authority over them. Each of these things mentioned here look forward to Christ in amazing and even marvelous detail. Verse 16 continues, The oversight of all of the tabernacle, of all that is in it with the sanctuary and its furnishings. In addition, he was given the final oversight of all of the mishkan, or tabernacle. That is the actual edifice, which is then covered by the tent, and which is, as a whole, rightly then called the tent of meeting. Everything which is connected to the holy places was to be under his supervision and authority. In other words, everything which has been described up to this point. Verse 17, Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Here we now have the introduction of another subsection of the chapter. It is one connected to what has already been said, but it is an important offset, and it is thus introduced with these words. Again, they are directed both to Moses and Aaron. Verse 18, Do not cut off the tribe of the family of the Kohathites from among the Levites. This is a solemn and emphatic warning concerning what lies ahead for the Kohathites. Here the word Shevet, or tribe, is used in a very unusual way. It normally speaks of a tribe of Israel, but here it is speaking of a subdivision of the tribe of Levi. Levi is a microcosm of Israel, representing their firstborn. And so the Kohathites are here considered as their own tribe of this group. As they have been given this great responsibility within Levite, they could be cut off, just as the greater tribe of Levi could be cut off from Israel. If the priests failed in their duties of supervision, if they got lax or negligent, or if they simply shirked their responsibilities, the penalty of death would result, and it would be the Kohathites who suffered that penalty because of it. This was not a warning that they would take lightly either. Aaron had already lost two sons for failing to heed. There would be no reason to expect that the Lord would refrain from destroying others in the execution of their duties as well. Verse 19, But do this in regard to them, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. The words here refer to all of the instructions given from verse 5 through 15, but they are also, and more especially, refer to that which is given in verse 20. The Kohathites were given charge of the most holy things, but that charge went so far and no further. When they approached them, they were never, never to touch them. They were only to do exactly as they were instructed, which was when, verse 19 continues, Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and his task. Aaron and his sons were to accomplish their tasks first, and only after that were the Kohathites to be given their responsibilities. When given, the instructions were to be exact and they were to carefully warn of the consequences for failure to heed. As Aaron had lost sons, and Eleazar and Ithamar had lost brothers, they would be able to fully convince the Kohathites of the severity of failing to pay heed to their warnings. No excuse for failure to pay heed in this process would be acceptable. If Aaron and his sons failed to warn, they would be to blame. If the Kohathites failed to heed, they would bear their guilt. Verse 20 finishes with, but they shall not go in to watch while the holy things are being covered, lest they die. The Hebrew literally reads, and no shall they go in to see for a gulp the holy things, lest they die. It is an idiom, meaning for an instant. It is explained in Job 7 verse 19, where he says, why won't you leave me alone at least long enough for me to swallow? 
As quickly as a person can swallow, so quickly will death come upon one of the Kohathites who gazes upon the holy things. In fact, a gulp might be the last thing that they do as their throat contracted through the shock of death. This is the severity of looking upon those things which prefigured the perfect Christ. The holiness of the Lord is seen in him, and only by the outer covering of a man like Adam could anyone behold his glory without being instantly killed. Only the mediators of the covenant and only by special dispensation from God could they even go in to cover these items, preparing them for those who would transport them. The lesson was not transmitted to the people of Israel as a memorial. And so exactly what is stated here is what would later occur. At the time of the judges, the ark was captured by the Philistines. Eventually, it was sent back to Israel, arriving in Bet Shemesh. However, the people of Bet Shemesh, like Uzzah, failed to check with the instruction manual. Here's what it says. Then he struck the men of Bet Shemesh because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. Last night, believe it or not, I watched Indiana Jones and the ark of the, the first one, the ark of the covenant. And Think of it. They remember the guys looked in and they pulled out the sand, said there's nothing in there. And all of a sudden out comes the, the spooky ghosts and then everybody gets zapped and there's only only him and her there because they had their eyes closed. Well, imagine that actually happened in reality. The Lord struck these people because of their irreverence to him. This would likewise be the penalty for the Kohathites if any of them failed to heed. The holiness of the Lord is not something that is often talked about in churches but it is something that is constantly referred to in Scripture. We often talk about Jesus in the most friendly terms, and rightly so. He is as close to us as any friend we could have or even a brother, and yet he also is the Lord God. He is to be treated with the highest reverence and respect in our words, in our lives, and in our churches. The name of Jesus means salvation, and it is he who has saved us. But that means that we needed saving, and thus we were fallen. Because he saved us, it means that he is not fallen. He is pure, holy, and undefiled. We should ever remember this and use his name in the context of holiness. It is he who prevailed over this world, and to him therefore belongs eternal glory, honor, and praise. This is the God we serve and who has been seen in the many implements described for us in lesser detail today, but which was so carefully and meticulously recorded for us in the book of Exodus. Let us be so very thankful to God that we have seen, at least in regards to understanding these things, what was hidden from the eyes of Israel. We have Jesus, the glory of God revealed, even to fallen eyes and because we have Jesus, we have the absolutely sure hope that we shall see Jesus with purified eyes as well. Someday, and may it be soon, our faith will become sight as we stand before the Lord God Almighty, Jesus our Lord. Our closing verse comes from Revelation 1. It is verse 12. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw. Imagine seeing Jesus in his fullness and all of his glory. That's why we're here is to understand God, the glory of God that is revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. That's why we come to church. We don't come to church to be uplifted. We don't come to church to have, well, we got some great stuff in back to eat, but that's not why we come here. We come here to glorify God with our lives. He's the purpose of church, not us. We often make it about ourselves, but he is the purpose of why we come. And he has revealed himself through the person of Jesus Christ. I don't care what anybody says. I don't care what anybody says on this planet. Jesus Christ is God. He is fully God, 100% fully God. And he is also fully man. He is the revelation of the Father that we can understand. That's why it's called the revelation of Jesus Christ in the last book of the Bible. is because he is revealing himself and what he's going to do. Every time you see, and I saw, and there's... God, it is him. It is the lamb. It is the one on the throne. It is everything that you see is Jesus. We cannot make the fundamental error that God is somehow separate from Jesus Christ. They are one. And he is also the man who is the sacrifice for our sins. 
If we don't get that right, we will not be able to go to that God someday in fellowship in his presence. He gave his life so that we could be forgiven of our sins. He fulfilled that law. We can't do it. We've talked about that a million times in this church. There's no way we can do it. The man who does these things will live by them. That's right. If you do them, you'll live. And if you don't, you'll die. Well, nobody's done it. The record of the Old Testament is clear. Every single one of them is dead. There's not a single person that survived the Old Testament times. And there's not a person that has survived since then. Only Jesus. He came out of the grave. He. And so he gave that life in exchange for our sins. He came out of the grave to prove it. If you call on the name of the Lord, you will, not maybe, not could lose, you will be saved. That is what God asks you to do, is to call on Jesus. Every single detail of this marvelous passage that we looked at today, which people read and don't pay attention to because it's so tedious, and they say, oh, I'm glad I got through that. Every single detail was about him. The purple, the blue, the red, the gold, the wood, everything, the number of staves, the number of staves, if there's one or two, every single detail is about him because God wants us to wake up. I need Jesus. Please forgive me of my sins. I come to you, O oh God, through him, and you will be saved. That's what he asks of us. I'm going to read our closing verse again because it's so wonderful. Think of what we were looking at, hidden from their eyes. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me, and having turned, I saw. Oh, my, my hair's standing up all over my body right now. Next week is Numbers 4, 21 through 49. Be on time for the best seating. It's entitled, The Service of the Tent of Meeting. That'll be our eighth numbers sermon. And I know we've got plenty of empty chairs in this church. It doesn't matter. The best seating is right up front. Maybe back one aisle because you can't see over the uh, shofar. But anyway, <laughs> the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in the desert wandering aimlessly. But the Lord is there, carefully leading you to the land of promise. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a poem here called The Holiness of the Lord. Just in time, faith walked in. We have faith and grace in this building. The grace is that, you know what I was talking, I saw something this morning. I'm going to tell you before I go on. Remember when I said that the layout of the cross and praise is first and it's also the foundation of the cross and at the top are, the, are Rachel's sons, remember that? And I said that she pictured grace. Look at this cross here. What is the top word on that cross? It says grace. It's the first thing that I saw. This morning, I walked in and I said, is it? I wish I'd known that during the sermon because I could have shown people. But isn't that fun? Somebody got that right. Grace adorns the top of the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay. The holiness of the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, these are the words he was to them then relaying. Take a census of the sons of Kohath from among the children of Levi by their families, by their father's house. These instructions you shall be repeating from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. This is the service of the sons of Kohath. This is what their duty brings in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the most holy things. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his son shall come as to you I submit. Then they shall take down the covering veil and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue. And they shall insert as poles. Yes, they shall do this too. On the table of showbread, they shall spread a blue cloth to this task they shall commit and put on it the dishes, the pans, the bowls, and the pitchers for pouring, and the showbread shall be on it. They shall spread over them a scarlet cloth and cover the same with a badger skin's covering, and they shall insert its poles, so shall they do this thing. And they shall take a blue cloth and cover the lampstand of the light with its lamps, its wick trimmers, its trays, and all its oil vessels with which they service it both day and night. Then they shall put it with all its utensils in a covering of badger skins, so they shall do, and put it on a carrying beam as I am now instructing you. Over the golden altar they shall spread a blue cloth and cover it with badger skins covering, and they shall insert its poles, so they shall accomplish this thing. Then they shall take all the utensils of service with which they minister in the sanctuary, put them in a blue cloth and cover them with a covering of badger skins, and put them on a carrying beam, and so it they shall carry. Also, they shall take away the ashes from the altar, as to you I submit, and spread a purple cloth 
over it. They shall put on it all its implements, doing so with care with which they minister there. The firepans, the forks, the shovels, the basins, and all the utensils of the altar, so they shall do. And they shall spread on it a covering of badger skins and insert its poles too. And when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary... When the camp is set to go, then the sons of Kohath shall come them to carry. But they shall not touch any holy thing, lest they die. They shall be attentive to these things, even very. These are the things in the tabernacle of meeting, which the sons of Kohath are to carry. The appointed duty of Eleazar, the son of Aaron the priest, is the oil for the light, the sweet incense, the daily grain offerings as well, the anointing oil, the oversight of all the tabernacle, of all that is in it, with the sanctuary and its furnishings, so to you I now tell. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, a new set of words he was then relaying. Do not cut off the tribe of the family of the Kohathites from among the Levites, but do this in regard to them as my word rings, that they may live and not die when they approach the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint each of them to his service and his task by and by, but they shall not go in to watch while the holy things are being covered, lest they die. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct, our lives would be a mess. So be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand, and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. amen. Heavenly Father, oh, it's so good to be in your presence. It's so good to know what a sure word we have. The details are so exact. They're so precise and they're so minute. Help us to handle this word carefully, to read it with Love in our hearts, knowing that it came from you out of love. Help us to apply it to our lives daily. Then, Lord, you heard the people that we mentioned at the beginning of this service today. You know the people that are in North Carolina that have had many difficulties, and some of them are probably getting rained on heavily today, but we're sure that they're probably okay, the ones that are more to the west. But we would ask that you would protect them, keep them from any downed trees or fallen power lines, things like that. And we would pray for the other people that we mentioned specifically by name, that you would be with them, help them, and guide them. And we pray for Chris and Judy, who are both not here, and we're praying that they're both okay and that you would build up their bodies and bring them back to a state of health, if that's the case with Judy, and certainly with Chris. And Lord, we love you. We, we exalt you because of your greatness and your glory and your splendor and for the love you've shown us in the cross of Calvary, the giving of your son for our sins. Thank you for that. And so we commit the table, the table of communion to you in his name, because of what he did. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.